This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 7th, 2014. From Slate, this is The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The top business story today is internet giant Alibaba being listed on a U.S. stock exchange. Alibaba, the internet giant. You probably know internet giant Alibaba from being called internet giant Alibaba in news items like this one. Right now, me saying internet giant Alibaba. It's huge. It's an internet giant. You've never heard of it. You don't know anyone that uses it. It's like that TV show, According to Jim, or Aaron Carter, or The Sport of Cricket. Or if you like the sport of cricket, the sport of hockey, because I've never met anyone who likes both. But as I thought about this whole Alibaba thing, I was wondering, why is a Chinese company called Alibaba? Isn't Alibaba a Persian myth? You know, 1001 Arabian Nights? Yes, it is. But the reason the company's called Alibaba is this. Alibaba. 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 People of many different tongues can easily say Alibaba. They even probably like saying Alibaba. It's like the Esperanto of pronunciation, if the word Esperanto were really easy to pronounce. It's a great idea. It really works. That's why Alibaba was chosen. It only alienates one group I could think of, certain broadcasters or maybe friends of yours who just get off on pronouncing things correctly. In Qatar today, today in Mumbai, I'm vacationing in Ibiza, Jean-Paul Sartre van Gogh. You know, I didn't even say Jean-Paul Sartre correctly. I don't even know how to say most things correctly. I'm not one of these correct pronunciators. Alibaba is fine with me. Alibaba. I like saying Alibaba. On the gist today, the ins and outs of politics, literally getting into the Senate, getting out of the House. And also, Maria Konnikova will be by answering the question, personality tests, even the scientific ones like Myers-Briggs, are they bullshit? And in the spiel, Monica Lewinsky, one-time intern, current former intern. And now, here's some politics. Congress is a lot like the Bonnaroo Festival. People are desperate to get in, but once you're there, you begin to feel dirty. There's all this mud being slung, and you just want to wash yourself of the whole experience. Before long, you are desperate to get out. Mark Leibovich, author of This Town, is the New York Times Magazine's chief national correspondent. He's writing about this phenomenon, and how you doing, Mark? Uh, Good, Mike. Good to be here. Good to be remotely here. Yeah. You wrote about Mike Rogers, who's this powerful guy, Michigan Republican. He chairs the House Intel Committee. You'd think that would be a plum job that you'd want to keep, but no. But no, exactly. Mike Rogers is giving up all of the grandstanding and the ego stroking and the, the, the sort of self-dealing of Congress behind to go into a noble profession. He's now going to be a talk radio host. Yeah. <laughs> He, he is actually going to be nationally syndicated radio host for Cumulus Radio. Um, he's probably making about 10 times as much as he would have 
in Congress, and arguably he's actually going to have a bigger impact and will have his voice heard by a lot more many people. Uh, he's also not ruling out running for even higher office when, when one day, which is, you know, he would say president of the United States. So, uh, yeah, all options are open. Oh, when you said he's running for higher office, I was thinking Sean Hannity's seat? Yeah, it, well, exactly. You know, he'd be running for Rush Limbaugh's seat. Now, in, 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 um, in talk radio land, I mean, some would argue that um, that's actually a more powerful position, um, at least on the right, than, um, than being president of the United States as a Republican. So, no, I don't know. But he is, he's keeping all options open, as they all do. Yeah, so I understand you want to be a public servant. I also understand the lure of weather and traffic on the uh, twos. <laughs> on the hour. Yeah, yeah. but, um, you know, it, and it also strikes me that of all the political templates to um, emulate, that Alan Keyes would be a prominent one is <laughs> kind of shocking. That is yeah. actually not making sense. But it is. I get the money part. It's just that Congress is so dysfunctional. Right. Right. Um, you know, I think so. I mean, I think, look, he's, this is not a backbencher. I mean, Mike Rogers is, like you said, he's chair of the Intelligence Committee. He was on more Sunday shows last year than any other political figure in the country. It was like 25, 26. So he certainly doesn't have a problem in getting his voice heard. Um, I, I, I think, you know, his value proposition, he would say, is that he's going to be a voice for reasonableness. He's going to be a voice for sort of rationally looking at politics. And, um, you know, I think he would hope to... At least he would say he would hope to distance himself from the Alan Keyes model. Although, and then as soon as the ratings numbers come in and he's lagging behind all of all of the competition, I mean, he might have to adjust his strategy or his bosses might. Think. Right, or, you know, take off sweaters or change the color of the sweaters. That was the Alan Keyes question. <laughs> yeah, of course, they can't see the sweaters on radio, Mike. That's the thing. As Bill Maher said, I mean, why not go into talk radio? You, you make tons more money and no one can see your toupee. Um you know, in the interest of responsible journalism, my column, I did point out that Mike Rogers does not wear a toupee, according to sources close to Mike Rogers. But uh, who knows? I could be wrong. Okay, so let's talk about the people, though. Even though it seems so terrible and Rogers wants to get out, or maybe it's not terrible, I mean, $10 million or however much he's getting is great. You know, people are desperate to get in, and yesterday we had some primaries. I don't know if there were surprising results, but in North Carolina, where Kay Hagan, who's a sitting Democratic senator, is expecting a big challenge, the question was, will it be from an establishment candidate? Will it be from a Tea Party candidate? Tea Party lost. Um, how do you read into that? And then I'm going to give you my take on the Tea Party, but you go first. Uh, no. I mean, I think, you know, maybe, I mean, people are reading this as a blow against the Tea Party. Maybe the establishment is circling the wagons and has had enough of these, you know, unelectable Tea Party nominees. Um, I, I think it's a small sample size, but I think, you know, certainly it's consistent with the Republican Party, what they're trying to do, which is get behind the more electable candidates. And who knows? I mean, maybe the, this is also a larger, uh, you know, a larger harbinger for what's going on with the Tea Party. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, exactly what you said is my thought, the idea of the small sample size. So at first, I mean, there definitely is something going on, and it's not like the Tea Party is unpopular, but, you know, you could point to, there are only a few elections a year, and there's a lot of stats about polling or whatever, but there are only, you know, five or six actual contested data points for us to base anything on. So on the one hand, you could say, oh, the Tea Party, they shot themselves in the foot with the Delaware witch lady, Christine O'Donnell. But, you know, people don't talk about, you know, what about Ron Johnson of Wisconsin? This totally, he's very Tea Party. He seems like a totally legitimate candidate. I don't know. I don't know how much we could read into it at all. And I don't know how much we could read into what, and this is how I think it all relates back. Is the Tea Party actually still, even if they're losing primaries, still imbuing the Republican Party with ideas? 
Um, I, I would say that they are. I mean, look, I think with the real the real laboratory for this tends to be bigger elections, whether it's a Senate election or certainly a presidential election. I think you know we'll get a real indicator of this you know, in the run up to the 2016 primaries when we see how the discourse is influenced if someone like a Ted Cruz or a Rand Paul runs and and we sort of see how how it you know might inform the views of the eventual nominee eventual nominees whether it can be one of those guys or whether it's a more establishment figure like a Jeff Bush or a Chris Christie. Yeah. Now, I want to give you a, a quote that Mike Huckabee says, who's politician turned media star. In politics, there are three basic categories. There's campaigning, there's governing, and there's talking about it. I just think he totally misses the idea of ideas. And you were, you were portraying Mike Rogers as thinking, or at least saying, that this post, a radio show, will be a better way to get ideas into the Republican Party. You know, are the ideas really coming from, they come from everywhere, but are they coming from talk radio? more than they are from actual elected officials? Is that a legitimate thing to say? Well, first of all, the, the part of the Huckabee quote that you didn't say is at the end when he said, you know, talking about it pays the most. So I think that's what drives a lot of criticism. But, no, I mean, I think your point is correct, and I also think your point is poignant because the Republican Party is quite bereft of ideas these days. I mean, I think that has been really the issue there, and it's not coming from talk radio, and it's not coming from elected officials, and it's not coming from candidates so much. I mean, Paul Ryan is seen as you know, the, the idea guy on the right, and, and he certainly wasn't able to get any oxygen, even as the Republican vice presidential nominee the other, you know, in, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I mean, ideas are a huge part of this, but you have to get into to power in order to enact them, and you have to get into a serious political environment uh, in if, if you're going to get them heard and debated. So that hasn't happened in the last years with the Republican Party. Well, I want to thank you, Mark Leibovich, and I want to uh, congratulate Tom Tillis, who won that Republican primary. Maybe one day he'll be a senator, and that will grease the way for him to host his own Google <laughs> Hangout. <laughs> and maybe, and yeah, and if he really succeeds, he might do a podcast. <laughs> but we hold that to a much higher standard. <laughs> Mark Leibovich, author of This Town, writes for the uh, Sunday Magazine. He's the chief national correspondent for the Times Sunday Magazine. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. All right, BuzzFeed quiz. Which of these Game of Thrones characters are you? All right, I like weightlifting more than archery. I like the Hollies more than Madonna. I like Braveheart more than the Omen. All right, submit. Please be the hound. Please be the hound. Sansa! It's always Sansa! I'd have even accepted Arya. You know, I'm beginning to think that these online quizzes might be bullshit. Well, joining us to discuss... Our ongoing quest to find out, is this or that bullshit, is Maria Konnikova. Maria, what kind of science and psychology writer are you? I am the sort of writer who prefers to be Tyrion Lannister to Jon Snow, <laughs> because I like to think of myself as sarcastic and wise beyond my years and my stature. All right, now let's be more tangible. What's your beat? Why are we talking to you about these online games and these silly, I'm going to say silly personality quizzes matched to TV characters? Well, my background and most of what I write about is human psychology, what makes us who we are, why we think the way we do, what we 
you know, what really makes us tick as human beings. So these quizzes, I mean, what do you think the appeal is of going online and finding out what Star Wars character are you, what cast member of Girls are you, what noble gas are you? Why do we, why do we like this? I think that's a two-part um, answer. The first is very basic. We love ourselves. And we're very me-centric. And everything that tells us more about us, we like, because clearly we are the single most interesting person in the room. Yeah. You know, I'm more interesting than you are, clearly. And you... To you, you're probably more interesting than I am. Look, you're in the top two in this conversation. I'll give you that. Thank you. Right. Thank you. I'll take that. Strong silver that. medalist. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is, especially in the online world where, you know, it's a very, very big space. We all need ways to signal who we are or what we'd like other people to think of us. And so this is a way of saying, hey, you know, I'm Tyrion Lannister, so I'm going to bond with all of the other Tyrions out there. And now I have my own little sub-community within, you know, these multi-thousand social networks where you'd otherwise be lost. So you can now go play with all the other Sansas. <laughs> yeah, and we'll pray to the old gods and weep morosely. So, but here's the thing. Okay, so... I don't think we expect that BuzzFeed quiz, which Game of Thrones character you which has gotten two million hits, we don't really expect that to have any so sort of scientific validity. Mm -hmm. But there are all sorts of personality quizzes, including ones that claim scientific veracity. You know, what's behind them? All of those quizzes that do claim uh, scientific veracity are much more BuzzFeedy than we'd like to believe. Uh -huh. um, so even the ones that people base hiring decisions on, you know, what's your Myers-Briggs type, for instance, that means absolutely nothing when you actually get right down to the nitty-gritty of how predictive these things are. Why do we think they're predictive? Well, if you think about all of the quizzes that are used to really look at personality, they're mm -hmm. also incredibly general. They'll ask, you know, I am generally impulsive, and you'll have to say yes or no. Or <laughs> when I sit in the movies, if it's a long movie, I fidget. You know, these are these are very general statements. And so you get these very general characteristics. And they're never, especially the ones we see when we see the feedback, think about all of the Myers-Briggs types mm -hmm. again. None of them are negative. Yeah. There's not a single one that's phrased in a negative way. Knowing that they are based on less than solid science, that's something we've known for a while, right? We have. This all goes back to the 1940s, which was the first real test of this um, with a psychologist named Bertram Forer. And he gave a group of students um, a test that he said was predictive of personality and life outcomes, which is what all of these tests say. Mm -hmm. um, the students took it. Then a, f a week later, he handed them back answers, all individualized, and they had little profiles of who they were. And he asked the students to say, hey, how many of you think these are accurate? Basically, everyone raised their hand. Then he asked them to actually rank them, you know, on a scale of one through five, how representative is this of my personality? How good do you think this is as a personality test, et cetera? And most of the rankings were um, above a four. There was only one person who gave it below a four out of the entire class. Oh. And then he gave them kind of the big reveal, which was that they'd all received identical feedback this test was totally bogus, and the feedback he took from an astrology book that he'd found on a newsstand. And so here they were agreeing with what a wonderful assessment this is. And let me back up a second. These were psychology students. Yeah. So they were studying methodology. They were studying you know, proper psychology techniques. They were studying how to use this in a real setting. And yet they were all taken in by astrology. So 
It was either smart or lucky, but I'm going to suspect smart of him to use the, the astrology book because the way they phrase it, I mean, the reason people like their horoscope is not because it says you're going to wear mismatched socks today, but because it says something like you will encounter a situation that you've never encountered before, but it will remind you of something that you have encountered. Exactly. Exactly. So it was very smart of him. And it these weren't future predictions. Instead, these were kind of, you know, who are you? If you're, what sign are you? Are you a Leo? Are you a Taurus? They'll say, you know, these are, this is what you're like. And these particular answers said things like, you know, you like being around people, but sometimes you have the need to be by yourself. And everyone, you know, <laughs> nods wisely and yeah, says, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's actually, it yeah. sounds, it sounds like me. Yeah. And that goes back to your whole point about you thinking you're so fascinating. You know, it's very hard for you to, to divorce yourself from your own ego in that moment and just say, wait a minute, I've thought like that. And no one ever says, but everyone thinks like that. Exactly. Exactly. Right away, we think I am unique. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's another psychological effect called the Lake Wobegon effect, which is this lovely town, Lake Wobegon, where every single person is better than average. Yeah. And this is very famous because it's true. Yeah. And almost in everything, you think you're better than average. You yeah. think you're exceptional. You think yeah. you're unique. I mean, I'm the best driver in the world. Driver, yes. That yeah. comes up a lot. I think I'm the best driver. People think that they're more generous than others. People think they're more compassionate than yeah. others. Weirdly, people don't think that they're better at math than other people. That's one of the ones that I've seen <laughs> That's polling. interesting. Yeah. But, you know, they do think that in all of these experiments where, you know, you test generosity, you know, mm -hmm. how much would you give? And then they always ask how much would someone else give? They say, you know, I would would give you know, five dollars other people would probably give about two yeah i want to come back to the mmpi mm -hmm. which is one of these personality tests the myers-briggs test you know people are hired and fired based on this it's yeah. not seen as this huge scam so is it that the people perpetuating these tests are themselves deluded is it that they have you know a good little business going and if there's going to be a buyer sure i'll tell you you're an introvert yeah. or an extrovert what's going on there well i think that when you're the one who's doing the research and when you're the one who's created the test, it's incredibly difficult to be objective. You want it to work and there's, you know, there's demand characteristics, which means that the experimenter gets what the experimenter wants. And so you only selectively see yeah. what you want. It's called motivated reasoning. You reason, but it's very highly motivated by the exact result you want to see. But we've known since the 1960s that there's very little correlation between personality tests and real-world behavior. So Walter Michel, who's currently in his 80s and who's devoted his life to studying personality or, or really debunking traditional measures of personality. He's, he's the don't take the marshmallow he guy. He is the don't take the marshmallow <laughs> you know guy. Study, and yeah. um, full disclosure, he was my graduate advisor really? for my PhD. When you yes. first first meeting, you go into his office, he offers you a little plate of marshmallows? Absolutely. Absolutely. And only after I sat in that office for five hours did he say, okay, I'll take you as a He surrounds student. himself with marshmallow rejectors. Yeah, Interesting cause, strategy. Because you know, the, yeah. uh, the older you get, the, the longer you have to wait. So... 15 right. minutes just wasn't enough, so I was there for hours. But back in the 60s, he wrote this book where he looked at every single instrument that existed and looked at the correlations with what they predicted and real behavior. And he found that on average, the correlation was at best 0.4. Um, so if you think of zero as no correlation right. and one as perfect, 0.4 is less than half right. at best. Yeah. So the best Which is like an eh correlation. Exactly. It's not nothing, but it's eh. Exactly. It's not nothing, but it's not something that you'd want to base a hiring decision on. Right. Um, you don't want to make any important life decisions on 0.4. All right, so final judgment. Subject is 
Personality tests. Are personality tests bullshit? Absolutely. Personality tests are bullshit. The personality test people are going to get upset with you. Oh, they will. I'm expecting lots of hate mail. They're going to call now. you a confrontational extrovert. <laughs> Maria Konnikova, author of Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, writes for The New Yorker about issues of science and psychology. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I'm going to get real zeitgeisty. Well, especially if this were 1999, this would be totally zeitgeisty. But it's in the news today. It's the new piece in Vanity Fair on Monica Lewinsky. In it, Lewinsky makes clear that she is not the victim of abuse, that she made the choices she made with Bill Clinton of her own free will. But she was the victim of sexual harassment in the sense that she was harassed because of sex. It was consensual, but she was definitely punished for it. Conservative forces used her as a cudgel against the president that they were hunting. Liberal forces disowned her as an inconvenient rebuke to the great promise of the Clinton presidency. Neo-Puritanical forces shamed her. Back then, the pervasive view was that Lewinsky was at best a naive trollop. That a 22-year-old intern who had oral sex with a married man was wrong, wrong, wrong. Here are some of the phrases that New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd used to describe Lewinsky. 24-year-old valley girl who friends say she is, quote, like suicidal, end quote. Like a high school kid waiting outside her boyfriend's biology class. Monica identified with Rose, the feisty, zaftig, young heroine of Titanic. Monica became the raging, vengeful Glenn Close character in Fatal Attraction. I pulled all of those phrases from the 10 columns, which were all about the Lewinsky scandal, that the Times submitted on Dowd's behalf to the Pulitzer Prize Committee. Dowd won the Pulitzer in commentary for those columns, by the way. And I I went back, I read all of them. And you could see that Dowd was giving voice to this widespread disgust. There was this thought, if Lewinsky had never either seduced the president or facilitated her own seduction, then we'd never have been put through this sordid ordeal. And also in the columns, a couple of times, there's the idea, that it's actually the dread that Lewinsky would soon be cashing in on a book deal. Well, she never did. Back in 1998, there was no Jezebel, no Slate Double X, no Twitter activism to point out that Maureen Dowd, who was an anti-impeachment Democrat, was actively engaged in slut-shaming Lewinsky, mocking her suicidal thoughts, and not to mention calling her, and for some reason, Kate Winslet fat. I still think that if the scandal happened today, the vast majority would shame or loathe or be turned off by Monica. Look on Twitter right now, the sentiment is, go away, Monica. But a small enough niche would also exist to make the counter-argument, and maybe that would even represent an audience that Lewinsky could appeal to. Take Kim Kardashian. If she could pivot off a sex tape to build a media empire, granted, it is an empire of vapidity, but it's an empire, then Lewinsky could have used an intellect which went on to earn a master's degree from the London School of Economics to achieve something other than a lifetime of hiding. So many post-Lewinsky scandals have spurred celebrity, and Lewinsky can't even get an entry-level job at a nonprofit. Monica Lewinsky was a victim of her era as much as her actions. I mean, think about if you knew, personally knew, a 22-year-old who had a sexual dalliance with a powerful boss. If she were your friend, would you drop her? If she were your niece, would you shun her? Would it be fair if those nine encounters defined her, your friend, for what's coming on two decades now? 
I wouldn't be surprised if Monica herself for many years didn't think she deserved rehabilitation, but now she is asking for it. And I do think that we all, well, all of us who are not named Hillary or Chelsea Clinton, I do think we all owe Monica Lewinsky something of an apology. That's it. Producer Andrea Salenzi knows what's what and what the meaning of is is. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is the man who offered me a brief hug on a rope line whilst I donned a beret. You can subscribe to iTunes and give us a review. You can search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app on Android, on iOS. There's Stitcher. SoundCloud. SoundCloud's a good way to listen. We'll also be in the Slate Daily Podcast feed. Here is the Gist email option, a simple 14-step process. Visit our show page, slate.com slash the gist. Click on my picture, anywhere on my picture. This will take you to today's show. And there you will find a circular button to sign up for the daily email. And oh, what worlds this will reveal to you because the email will hit your inbox as soon as the show's available. And it's also a special magic email that will actually play the show from the email. I'm not kidding. You can also send an email to us at thegist at slate.com. Do let us know what you think and bring a pizza when you stop by tomorrow. <laughs>